0: 11.55pm 1997 Once upon a time, before we had children, I used to work as a Catholic priest. On one occasion, I fell asleep during one of my own sermons, an accomplishment which is easier than it sounds. I said Mass on Sunday evenings in a parish full of wonderful young families. I thought I was doing everyone a favour by keeping the sermons short a discipline I achieved by sticking to topics I knew something about. Generally, my wisdom had petered out by the end of the third minute. One day, after the service, a mother of three young boys took me to task for my brevity. She wasn't concerned that she was missing out on the secret of God. With three kids, she knew much more about that than I did. The woman's problem with me was practical. She put good money on the plate, and wanted better value. Mass was her only chance on the weekend to have a rest, and by late Sunday afternoon she was totally exhausted and facing the weekly prospect of getting the lunches cut, the boys to school and herself to work the following morning. The sermon was her only chance for a bit of a nap. Would I mind stretching it out a bit? Making it longer? She'd be grateful if I could. She needed the rest. I said I would do what I could. I knew I was improving when I nodded off during the sermon myself. This may be divulging a trade secret, but once a sermon gets beyond a couple of minutes, it reaches a delicate point at which the preacher has no idea what he or she is going to say next. The custom was to keep the sermon ticking over until something popped into your head. A practice known as relying on the spirit, a risky way of going about things, especially when the most likely thing to pop into your head was either what you'd already said or what you'd soon wish you'd never said. Another strategy when stuck for an idea was to pause briefly and invite the congregation in a reassuring tone to think about Reflect on, or if you were particularly desperate, to meditate on what you'd just been saying. It was on one such occasion that, with my hands joined devoutly on the lectern, my head started to nod, my eyes closed, my breathing slowed and deepened. It was only when I bumped into the microphone that I woke myself up and noticed that the congregation was giggling. I remember thinking that I must have said something funny and wondered what it was. The incident was part of a bigger picture. I wasn't just falling asleep during my own sermons, I was falling asleep anywhere and everywhere. I would go to bed early, get up as late as possible, and yet by ten o'clock in the morning, there was nothing I wanted more than to go back to bed. At the same time, my snoring was getting worse and worse. I could make a monastery sound like a factory. I underwent my first sleep study in January 1997 at the age of 35. The cheerful technicians stuck a suite of electrodes to my scalp, chest and legs and put a band around my chest to measure my breathing. They also put a microphone somewhere to record my snoring. This, I presumed, was how they made sound effects for disaster movies. The electrodes were all connected to a machine called an electroencephalograph which traces brain waves, drawing a picture of what the brain is doing during sleep. Then, trussed up like a chook at Christmas, I was asked to get as good a night's sleep as possible. Meeting the doctor, John, was one of those experiences, a bit like what I imagine it is to discover that your partner has been having an affair for years, when you realise that you have known very little about a major part of your own life. John produced an impressive little pile of printouts, technically known as a polysomnograph, which were generated during my night in the sleep lab. He started circling parts of them with a magnificent black Mont Blanc fountain pen, which I began to eye off. How do you think you slept in the lab? he asked. Oh, all things considered, not too bad, I replied. Were you aware of waking in the night? No, no. I reckon I slept right through. Undisturbed? Totally undisturbed. He was writing all this down with his Montblanc. He then put the lid on the pen, with a small flourish, indicating it was time for him to stop listening and start speaking. Actually, he said, you woke up 287 times. You slept for a total of 5 hours and 49 minutes, and this means you were waking up on average 49 times an hour. Or in other words, almost every minute. And what about the snoring, I asked. This is related to the waking. I'll explain how that works in a minute. We were recording you at well over 80 decibels, which is the same as traffic noise or shouting. Normal conversation is 60 decibels. Hearing damage starts at 90 decibels. You weren't far short of that. It was quite a racket, I believe. Wow. Yes, wow, indeed. He picked up the pen, but then put it straight down. He knew he had my attention now. There were some important things I needed to understand. The 287 interruptions to my sleep were called apneas, a word of Greek origin which means the cessation of breathing, and I had a condition called obstructive sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is in large measure the result of a design fault in the upper airway. The human throat is a floppy tube, something that distinguishes us because all other species have rigid throats, a situation which is thought to have come about because of the human need to speak. While you are asleep, your tongue and soft palate, which is the fleshy part at the top rear of your mouth, relax and your throat collapses. Your ovula, The bit that hangs over your tongue like a stalactite and becomes visible when you gargle also flops in the way, as do your tonsils. As a result of so much slack behaviour behind your teeth, the passage of air to your lungs may be blocked, especially if you've had a bit of alcohol or if your throat is narrow. Why might your throat be narrow? Perhaps you're a bit chubby. The body stores fat in visible places and also Invisible ones, such as the walls of the throat. If your throat falls in on itself or becomes obstructed, the level of oxygen in your blood decreases and the amount of poisonous CO2 rises. If something didn't happen at this stage, you'd suffocate. But luckily, the increase of CO2, decrease of O2 and the work of various receptors in the throat, lungs and chest all send a message to the brain that it needs to wake up, and the brain obliges. The loud, spluttering, strangling, gargling noise that passes as snoring is actually your attempt to push the palate and tonsils out of the way, open the throat, and clear the airway. The noise sounds desperate, and it is. Would this be happening every night? I asked the doctor. John picked up the pen and held it between his two forefingers like the rod of judgment. Yes, every single night of your life. You're lucky we found out. It was five minutes to midnight for you. I must have looked shocked. Don't worry, he said. I love the old Cold War language. Had I been talking with John twenty years earlier, his options would have been limited. I could have tried sleeping on my stomach, an old-fashioned idea which can make a difference because it allows the soft tissue in the upper airway to fall forward and make less of a nuisance of itself. The advice given to snoring blokes in a bygone age to put a tennis ball in a sock and pin the sock to the back of their pyjama top is not just an old wives' tale. Upping the ante, he could have suggested a tracheostomy, an operation which puts a little hole in your throat below the site of the blockage. This hole is then left open at night, like a window, to let some air in. But it's not a sightly addition to the physiognomy, as it makes a person look a bit like a bassoon. The air bypasses the collapsible throat, but in so doing also bypasses the vocal cords, so you can only speak during the day by inserting a plug into the hole. A further and yet more drastic option may have been an ovulopalatopharyngoplasty, a word which required nothing less than the services of a Mont Blanc fountain pen to get itself onto a piece of scrap paper so I could contemplate it with all its vows. Don't worry, said John, it's normally just called a UPPP. A UPPP involves the removal of the tonsils, as well as a serious trim of the soft palate, the ovular and the pharyngeal arches, whatever they are. John wasn't recommending this form of major surgery. It tended to be very painful and was by no means guaranteed of success. Like a vasectomy, it isn't a procedure you can do yourself. But luckily, there was something which had become available of more recent times. It was called CPAP, meaning continuous positive air pressure and was the brainchild of a professor in Sydney called Colin Sullivan of whom John spoke with awe. Sullivan had come up with a clever solution to a problem that had baffled the boffins for ages. While others were dabbling in such elaborate ideas as injecting silicon into the soft palate to stiffen it up so it maintained its condition during sleep, Sullivan realised that the upper airway was a bit like a door which kept banging shut in the night. It just needed somebody willing to stand with their foot in the door, or maybe a breeze that would stop the door closing. That was it. Sullivan realised that what was required was a machine which would use simple air pressure to splint open the airway. The machine would fit into a mask, and the mask would sit over the nose of the patient. It was a simple but ingenious mechanical solution to a problem for which others had sought surgical, pharmacological and even psychological solutions. Colin Sullivan's bright idea has saved tens of thousands of lives. You also have periodic leg movements. John Monblanked this new problem onto page 2 of the polysomnograph. This means your legs are moving all night long, kicking. You spend the night walking without going anywhere. Why? Well, It's one of a number of sleep disorders in which people do rhythmic things during the night. Bruxism is another. Teeth grinding, in other words. We think these sorts of disorders may be some kind of release mechanism. I probably need the exercise. You're lucky you're a priest. At least nobody else is going to get kicked in the night. There's more to sleep than meets the eye, I said. I never realised. Most of it happens in the dark, so it doesn't meet the eye which is why it's been one of the last frontiers of medical research. Over time, John elaborated. He told me that many people think sleep is a passive state. It's not like that at all. I think of it as the night shift coming in. The plant doesn't close down. There are all sorts of active processes going on that need to happen overnight. So why do we sleep anyway? John looked around. I think he was trying to find his pen. He drew a deep breath. Well, he said, it's not like there's one explanation. It depends who you ask. If you ask a neurophysiologist, sleep is when a lot of neurochemicals get replenished. In other words, it's when the brain eats. If you ask a physician, sleep has a metabolic function. It's when a lot of tissue repair takes place. If you ask a psychiatrist, it's all about memory consolidation and the reprocessing of information, and dreams have a role in this. If you ask a developmental physiologist, sleep may be a remnant of our fetal existence and could be a hangover of circuit testing in the fetus, where dreams and dreamlike activity are important for helping a brain discover what it could do and teaching it how to do its job. I interrupted him. And what about you? What do you think it's for? I think it performs all these functions. Really? And more besides. The long and the short of it is that no one fully understands why we sleep, but everyone agrees that sleep is both vital and universal.